Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. Uh, This past week uh, was the anniversary of the death of a man named William Tyndale. Um, You you may have heard his name at some point. Uh, If you haven't, this is an important guy in the faith, the faith that we all have today. He actually translated the Bible into English for the first time, which is an amazing thing. He, He did this so that the common person would be able to read the Bible and, and process it and, and meet God right where he or she was. Now, now the problem with this was is that this was considered heresy. And, and there was a, uh, a student of his that kind of posed as a friend who betrayed him and turned him over to the authorities. He was subjected to a trial and he was convicted of heresy. Uh, and then on October 6th of 1536, he was uh, bound to a cross and he was strangled and ultimately burned at the stake. On October 16th, we will remember the lives of two men, Latimer and Ridley. October 16th of uh, 1555, uh, these two guys had been convicted again of heresy, and they were about to be burned at the stake. And after a 15-minute sermon urging them to repent and recant from their their heresy, they were chained to the stake, and a bag of gunpowder was hung around the neck of each man, and they were lit on fire. It's reported that Latimer uttered these words to Ridley just before the fire was set. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. I want you to think about these guys for just a moment, and I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Imagine that you're about to face this unbelievable persecution that ultimately is going to end your life. What's going through your head? What's going through your heart? What's coming out of your mouth as you stand there prepared to answer for your faith in Christ? Listen, it's an uncomfortable thought to think about this idea that God would allow or maybe even intend for his children to go through persecution or pain or suffering. But as we dive into the text today, we're going to have to wrestle with this exact thought of God allowing this and perhaps even uh, using this uh, for his church. And my hope, my hope this morning is that your question would be, Lord, what role are you wanting pain, suffering, persecution to play in my own life? The, the reality is, is that you will likely not be burned at the stake, But what I can promise you is that pain, suffering, hurt, and maybe even persecution is coming. And the question is, how are we going to respond when that day comes? So again, we are in Acts chapter 8. Fernando read it for us a little bit earlier. I want to start in verses 1 and 2. And and remember, setting the stage, Stephen has just been killed. Uh, He 
prayed for the forgiveness of his executioners at the end of, of chapter 7. So that's the, the context we're working in here. Uh, he cries out for forgiveness, and this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now listen, there is a, a ton in this text. We're going to kind of skip a rock across the surface of this whole text today. Uh, but the first thing that I want to say here is that, that Stephen's murder, what that did is it set in motion a, 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 a systematic persecution of the church. The goal was to extinguish Christianity. So it, it started with Stephen. They killed him, and then they were wanting to systematically destroy Christians and stop this movement. And Christians responded by scattering. Makes sense, right? Uh, they're coming door to door. They're coming after us. So we scatter. We get out of town, remove ourselves from this situation and out of the reach of this guy, Saul, who's trying to end our lives. Now, the problem for Saul and the religious ruling class at the time was that Christian scattering was the exact thing that the Lord had planned. That was what he desired, and, and so that's our first point today. Persecution is meant to scatter the church, not to crush it. Persecution is meant to scatter the church, not to crush it. Now listen, persecution is most definitely a tool that is used by the enemy to try and bring an end to Christians and to the church, without a doubt. That being said, the Lord in his sovereign rule, his complete and total control over all of creation, can and does use persecution to bring about his will. A great example of this is in Genesis chapter 50. If you remember the story of Joseph, he, he was the youngest of his brothers, and his brothers hated him because he was a favored child. And so they decided, we're going to go ahead and kill him and be rid of this guy. They threw him in a pit, and they start kind of talking it over, and they say, why should we kill him? Why don't we make a little bit of money off this guy? So they sell him into slavery. And, and over this twist and turn of events, he ends up as the second most powerful man in Egypt. And at the time, the Lord had made him aware that there was going to be a famine in the land, and so he begins to prepare by storing up food. Fast forward a little bit. His brothers and his family are in need. They're hungry, and they hear that there's all this food in Egypt. So the, the sons go to get the food in Egypt to bring back to uh, the house, and they eventually realize that this is, the, this is our little brother that we tried to kill, and they're terrified, rightly so. And his response to them is unbelievable. Do you remember what he said? He said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Listen, while, while persecution is meant to crush the Christian and the church, the Lord uses it for his purpose. Again, let's, let's look at the end of verse 1 here in Acts chapter 8. What does it say? It says, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. This should sound very familiar. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 should remind you of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 needs to remind you of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And so what we're seeing here through this persecution is that the Christians are scattered to the exact places that Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in these places. Remember, they were already in Jerusalem, and now they're scattered to Judea and Samaria through persecution. Acts 1.8 carries this incredible divine mandate to go and be his witnesses. But we need to remember that the means by which we get there can and likely often are uncomfortable. Often witnesses of Jesus go through fires of persecution before they get to the proclamation of peace. But the goal's always the same in the eyes of the Lord. Scatter the church. Get the Christians among those that don't know. Get the believers among the group that don't believe. Here's the application for us. What does Jesus say? He says, you will be my witnesses. He doesn't say, hey, if you got time, if you think about it, you might want to mention my name other other than when you just stub your toe, right? You will be my witnesses. This is a calling for us, for RCB as a whole, but it's also a call for individual lives within the church to go and be his witnesses. Christian, you are not called to simply sit here and soak everything up on a Sunday morning just to go back about your merry way until next week. We are called to scatter from here and be gospel outposts to a lost and dying world. We are called to make disciples. And here's the deal. The Lord will use whatever means that he has to to get us into his will, including persecution. But there's reason for encouragement here. No no matter how bad this persecution gets, no matter how much this world can throw at us, there is hope because the church will remain. The church will survive, and ultimately, the church will thrive. How can I say that? How can I say that? First, you need to understand that one in eight of the world's Christians lives in an area that is considered highly persecuted. One in eight. And and the church is not only surviving in these areas, in many cases, the church is experiencing unprecedented growth. Just crazy growth. So that's the first reason. The second reason, and probably the more strong of the two, is that Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Praise God that the survival, the growth, the thriving of the church does not depend on any human means depends on Christ and what he is going to do. So again, persecution is meant to scatter the church, not to crush it. Let's look at verses uh, 3 to 5. It says, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Okay, let's stop there. When it says that Paul was ravaging the church, here's the picture I want you to get in your mind. This is the way John Stott describes it. He was pursuing the church with a brutal and sadistic cruelty. He he is 
creating new ways to, to hunt these believers down. He is so committed to extinguishing the church that he enacts a door-to-door policy to be able to root Christians out from wherever it is that they're hiding. It didn't matter. He was ruthless. Men, women, he's hauling them off to jail, prison, to lock them up or to kill them. Later in life, Paul, in his own words in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, he says this. He said, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So, so this guy is a man who is unafraid of shedding Christian's blood. Like he has no qualms about it. He sat there and approved of Stephen being stoned to death. He's watching as stones are, are bludgeoning this guy to death and approves of it, as we saw in verse 1. He is not only approving of this, but he is backed by people who approve it, the religious ruling class and ultimately the, the Roman government. He had approval to do this. Now, the craziness that I see here is the response to these brutal actions. That's what I found to be, find to be astounding. The, the Paul, uh, or Saul rather at this time, exercises unbelievable authority over the uh, destruction of the church to try and destroy the church. And what do the people do? It says they went about preaching the word. Philip went to Samaria to proclaim to them the Christ. So the very thing that is, rain, is the reason why persecution is raining down on these new believer, early believers' heads is the fact that they are following Jesus and trying to make him known to make other believers join the kingdom. The very thing that was causing the persecution, they refused to quit. Spread that gospel message. Johann Brangel was a theologian in the 1700s, and he was commenting on this passage here. And in Acts 4, he said, wind increases the flame. Wind increases the flame. Which brings me to our second point. Persecution reveals true faith and unleashes Christian witness. Persecution reveals true faith and unleashes Christian witness. In the 1940s, uh, we were in the middle of World War II. We had been bombed at Pearl, been bombed at Pearl Harbor on December 7th of, on, of 1941, um, and as a result, we were thrust kind of headlong into this, this war, this battle. And, and literally thousands upon thousands of men were being drafted into the war effort to go uh, fight the Nazis. Now, there was a fear among young teenage boys in particular at the time, in the early 40s. How many of you would say that you would guess that their biggest fear is that they were going to be drafted and have to fight in the, in the war? Raise your hand if you think that's their biggest fear. Okay, fair enough, right? That's, that's what we would expect. 13-year-old kid should be getting dirty, digging up bugs and stuff like that, and he, he may be fighting in a war, that that's his biggest fear. Their biggest fear was that the war would be over before they could fight. That was a young teenager's biggest fear, teenage boy's biggest fear in the early 40s. How is this possible? Why? Okay, listen, the attack on Pearl Harbor did something in the hearts of Americans. What it did is it emboldened them to stand up for a nation that they loved and that they believed in. 
And, and because of that, because of the fact that they would stand up, many of them would give their lives for this. And in fact, we see there are records of, of young men who were younger, too young to enlist, and they were lying about their age so that they could go fight. And in many cases, their parents were corroborating their lies so that their son could go and fight this cause. See, I think that here in Acts, we're, we're seeing something in, in a much deeper sense of what was going on in the hearts of these early Christians. Their, their lives had been radically transformed by Jesus. They, they, they had been given this faith that was rock solid, and nothing in this world was going to crush it because it, it wasn't something that they manufactured. It was something that the Lord placed into them, and it couldn't be rocked. So remember, they're facing this high likelihood of, of persecution. They're facing this high likelihood of being arrested, being imprisoned. Uh, and, and instead of renouncing their faith and ceasing to share the gospel, they did the opposite. The wind increases the flame. See, as believers, their faith, their persistence in their faith uh, in the face of death serves as a powerful apologetic for the gospel or a defense of the gospel. I, I don't know where everybody is in this room, like where you're at with, with God, with Christianity, with the Bible. You, you may be walking in here thinking, yeah, I don't really know about this whole Christian thing. I don't really know about this Bible. I, 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 how can I believe that it's true? Uh, let, let me unpack something for you here. The, the events of Acts chapter 8 were at most a couple of years removed from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, so this is very, very close to the time of Jesus's death. And, and at this point in the, the church's life, what we're seeing is thousands upon thousands of Jews who are converting from Judaism to say, I will follow Jesus. I will become part of the way, right? And, and if this was all a manufactured lie that the apostles put together and said, yeah, yeah, his, his body, it's gone. He resurrected from the dead when they really hit it. Um, then this would not be a movement that would be possible. If you remember, Jesus, when he resurrected, he appeared to the apostles, and he appeared to Mary, and then it says that he appeared to around 500 others. These people were still around at this time, so they could have refuted this claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. So just go ask some of these 500 but it wasn't necessary because this is what happened. And these people were like, no, they, he rose from the dead. I'm going to follow. So that's, that's the first deal is that it would have been easy to prove wrong. The, the second thing is, who would be willing to die to perpetuate a hoax? You, you look at Stephen. Stephen was stoned to death, and he is the first of many who would ultimately give their lives for this cause of Christ, including many of the disciples who walked with him from early on in his ministry. These people gave up their lives and were subjected to this unbelievable persecution, uh, and they endured it because it was all true. And, and the persecution that this early church faced revealed their faith, and it helped them to, to share that faith with others. Their faith was proved to be true. So that, that was back then, right? The apostles are persecuted, the, the early church is persecuted. William Tyndale and, and these guys were persecuted. But does that happen now? <laughs> it 
And if it happens now, does the church still thrive and still grow under this persecution? The, the short answer is yes. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit. I don't have time to go into it deeply, although I, I, I wish I could. Go do some research on the persecuted church around the world. Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors USA. Go there and you get the story of what God is doing. If, if you'll permit me for a moment, I want to get a little bit academic. The uh, seminary, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, released a study on the status of global Christianity in, in 2020. And what they found was, was actually very, very interesting. They looked at the, the estimated growth rate of Christianity, and, and right now, globally, Christianity is growing at about 1.19% per year. If you look at global population, global population is growing at 1.2% per year. Not much difference, but here's the deal. Christians are still losing ground. We're not even keeping up with the global growth rate, okay? So that, that's globally. Let's look at North America. What's happening in North America? If you look at the growth of the church in, in uh, North America, what we're seeing is that per year, we're growing at a rate of 0.56%, just over a half a percent per year. And that is also falling short of the overall population growth in, in North America. Remember, where do we live? We live in a place that is like super comfortable. It, it does not cost us much to be Christians here. We, we are not facing violent persecution because of claiming the name of Christ, yet we are still in decline. Okay, so let's flip that coin. What about in some of these places where Christianity is persecuted? Let's take a place like Iran. In Iran, Christianity is functionally illegal. Christians are forbidden for sharing their faith. It's illegal to produce Christian literature. You cannot hold a church service in Farsi, which is the, the national language there. There are secret police who are making it their goal to find Christians to charge, lock up, execute, whatever it is. And if a, a Muslim converts to, uh, from Islam to Christianity, it is punishable by death. What's the church doing there? It's interesting. The church is growing at 19.6% per year. 19.6% per year. This is more than 15 times the overall population growth in Iran. It's about 35 times the growth of, of Christianity in North America. It is estimated that right now, the largest Christian movement in the world is happening in Iran. It's unbelievable. Now, I, I think it would be disingenuous to say that persecution is the key to seeing church growth uh, and, and church thriving, uh, because it is absolutely possible to prove that there are places where persecution comes down and it has stopped or slowed church growth. So I, I don't think we can say uh, this is causative, right? There, there may be some correlation. It's not causative. Uh, but I would say that there are many places where this very thing is happening. I would also say that in many places where Christianity is not persecuted, the United States and Europe, Christianity is in decline. 
This is a really interesting passage in Luke chapter 22. Uh, it's at the Last Supper, and, and Jesus looks at, at Peter, and he says to them, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. <laughs> Man, I wish that that second part of the verse wasn't there. I, I wish that Jesus had just said, no, Satan, not today. You don't get Peter today. You're not sifting him like wheat. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus said. He said, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Listen, Jesus was concerned with something bigger than, Jesus, uh, than Peter's comfort. He was focused on forging Peter's faith. And this forging was going to happen through persecution of the enemy. And his faith is going to be strengthened and even proven through this, which I think kind of echoes what's happening in Iran. So I want to I say something to anyone in here who's following Christ or anybody who's thinking about following Christ. It is not about your best life now. Your faith being proven is not about the mountaintop experiences where everything is awesome, everything is great, and nothing can go wrong. That's not where true faith is displayed and Christian witness unleashed. See, see that's displayed in the ditch. When our lives have been wrecked and our hopes and dreams have been dashed upon the shores, it's when we have every reason to retreat into bitterness and to despair, but instead we proclaim hope in Christ. That's where faith is proven. That's where true faith is revealed. That's where Christian witness is unleashed. Now, now listen, as a caveat here, I am not telling you to go look for ways to run your life into the ditch or develop some sort of martyr complex. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm telling you is that our life and the testimony of our life is clearly displayed through our pain and suffering, so we don't need to be aiming necessarily at making our lives look artificial and plastic and perfect. And you also need to understand that if everything good in your life is stripped away, but you still have Christ... You have everything that you need for joy and for peace and for hope that cannot be taken away. We need to understand that we may be put through the grinder to fortify our faith. And understand that persecution, pain, suffering, hurt, anguish will reveal true faith and unleash Christian witness. Look at verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Look at what's happening here. Crowds of people are coming. They're coming to hear these words that Philip is preaching about Jesus, about the kingdom, about hope and peace and, and all of this stuff. They're coming to see these signs and wonders that Philip is doing. 
there, there are demons who are being cast out of people. There are paralyzed people that are being made, being, being made able to walk. They're being healed. There are lame people being made strong. And check out the result, verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. The joy in that city is directly linked to the persecution that the church was enduring. The the joy in that city is directly related to the persecution that was raining down upon the church in Jerusalem. Think about this. If Stephen had not been killed, if Saul had not started going door to door, if believers are not being locked in prison, if the Christians did not flee this persecution, if Philip had decided, you know what, it's too tough, I'm just going to remain silent, then what's the result? No possessed people being freed. No paralyzed people being made to walk. No lame people being made strong. No signs, no miracles, no wonders. No word of God being preached to those who are far off. Hence, no joy overflowing in that city. The third point is this. Persecution can be a catalyst for joy. Persecution can be a catalyst for joy. God's economy is the only one where persecution, pain, suffering can and does lead to everlasting joy. It's the only economy where this happens. I defy you to find any other context where persecution can be a direct tie to joy. I don't think that there is one. But this is how the Lord designed things to work among his people. Unfortunately, predominantly in the West, we have this mentality that persecution, that pain, that suffering, that hurt, that there is nothing good that can come from it, that it's the worst thing ever. And as a result, we have begun to tailor our lives to fit that narrative. It influences everything that we think and everything that we do. It changes how we structure our lives, how we raise our children, how we uh, spend our money, where we choose to go, who we choose to hang out with, uh, you know, what we choose to do. All of these different things are influenced by this idea, avoid suffering, avoid persecution, avoid pain at all costs. And one of the things that I think needs to happen, and one of the things I'm praying for for RCB, is that the Lord would develop a theology of suffering in our hearts and our lives. Because without a theology of suffering, without an understanding of what the purpose of persecution, pain, suffering, hurt is in the church, we are going to miss much of what God has for us in the way of joy. I know that's not a popular message. It's not something that we get all geeked out to talk about. Man, going through some suffering, it's, man, it's going to lead to joy. We just don't, it doesn't compute for us. But the scriptures are not silent on this issue. Check this out, Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you for the, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Did you catch the wording there? It has been granted to you. Here's your gift of suffering for Christ's sake. 1 Peter 4.19, therefore, let those who suffer according to, the will, uh, to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
Did you catch that one? Suffered according to what? God's will. Ouch. That one stung. And you look at Jesus in John 15, 20. He's talking to his disciples, and he says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Listen, there are, we could go on and on. There are literally hundreds of verses that talk about persecution, that talk about pain, that talk about suffering, and how God can and will use that in our lives. It's not an easy thing to grapple with, but it is a necessary thing for us as Christians to begin to wrap our hearts and minds around. And here's the million-dollar question. Why? Why does God allow, why does he set it up like this? Why does he do this? There's many, many, many reasons. I think one is to display hope to a lost and dying world. Just imagine this. Let's, let's kind of paint this picture in our head. Christ followers who find joy in the midst of persecution provide hope for others who may be going through their own persecution. Christians who find joy in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering, provide hope for others who are going through pain and suffering. Think about it like this. If as a Christian, your commentary on the Christian life is, life is awesome and I have everything I could possibly want, nothing has gone wrong, hashtag blessed, Nobody relates with that. Nobody connects with that. It's completely manufactured and artificial as compared to with, say, Psalm 46, where it says, God is my refuge and my strength, my very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. I know that one's not going to get as many likes on Instagram, but which one talks about an eternal perspective? Which one helps people see this eternal God who is ruler and reigning over all? I think another reason that the Lord allows these things to happen is to sever our heartstrings to this world. He's severing our heartstrings to this world. Think about it for a minute. If this world was free of pain for the Christ follower, then there would be no reason to look forward to heaven. There, there would be no longing in the deep, dark, deep places of our heart and our soul to stand face to face, freed from the presence of sin. Worse than this, we would be left with this idea that all of this stuff around us is enough for us. And I've, I've got a, a secret for you. None of it's enough. Because only Jesus is meant to fill that, that void, that longing in our hearts. And our cry needs to be that of Paul in Philippians chapter 3, where he said, For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And I think that's the third reason, one of the, one of the reasons that God allows this to happen, to make us look like Jesus. We endure, endure suffering, we endure persecution to make us look like Jesus. Listen, God loves you 
exactly the way you are. Everybody needs to hear that. God loves you exactly the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. We need to get that out of our head that, that God is not taking us to this place where it's going to cause refining and cutting and some pain to make us look like Jesus. He is working to conform you to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. And everything that happens in our life, good, bad, or otherwise, is working for our good, Romans 8, 28. And when we look more like Jesus, his glory is spread throughout the, the world around us it's more clearly seen in us and through us. And then joy will follow. Joy follows when we look like Jesus, when we are made to look like Jesus because of the Lord. So persecution can be a catalyst for joy. I want to close with this. There's a song called If by a uh, group called uh, Beautiful Eulogy. If you've not heard of them, you need to go check them out on Spotify. They're awesome. Um, and I want to read some of these lyrics. And as I do, I want you to think about this. I want you to reflect on this. Is this the cry of your heart? Is this something that you can look to the Lord and say, God, I want this to be true about me? The song goes like this. If in one unfortunate moment you took everything that I own, everything you've given from heaven above and everything that I've known. If you stripped away my ministry, my influence, my reputation, my health, my happiness, my friends, my pride, and my expectation. If you caused for me to suffer or to suffer for the cause of the cross, if the cost of my allegiance is prison and all my freedoms are lost. If you take the breath from my lungs and you make an end of my life, if you take the most precious part of me, if you take my kids and my wife, it would crush me, it would break me, it would suffocate and cause heartache. I would taste the bitter dark providence, but you would still preserve my faith. What's concealed in the heart of having is revealed in the losing of things. And I can't even begin to imagine the sting that kind of pain brings. I would never blame you for evil, even if you caused me pain. I came into this world with nothing, and when I die, it'll be the same. I will praise your name in the giving and taking away. If I have you, I could lose everything and still consider it gain. Christ follower. Is that a reflection of your heart? And I understand we're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to sing that authentically. Because apart from him, we cannot do it. But will your cry be, Lord, no matter what comes, I will praise your name. No matter what it costs me, I will follow. Lord, set my heart on eternity and not on this world. Lord, give me a faith that cannot be shaken by the worst that this world can throw at me. Now, for those of you that are in here and you're not a Christ follower, and you're hearing this and you're thinking, man, that would be awesome to be able to say something like that to God, but I just, I don't know if I can do that. You can, but it's not because of you, and it's not because of your strength. That can be your cry to the Lord because of Jesus. Listen, none of us in this room, no matter how holy we are, is they are able to stand under the weight of pain and persecution. It's through the Holy Spirit who Jesus has given us that we're able to stand, and you can too. 
when Jesus died on that cross, he took your sins too to the grave if you'll, if you'll believe in him. And when he rose from the dead, those sins stayed there. He presents you as righteous and holy. But he's asking you this question, will you believe? And he's not asking you to be perfect. He's not asking you if you can be perfect. He's not asking you if you can be good. He already knows the answer to that question, and I'm assuming you do as well. He's asking, do you believe? Do you believe? Believe and be saved.